0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. On today's show, my guest is Greg Dimas. He's a senior researcher at Baidu Research here in Silicon Valley in the U.S. As many of you know, uh, deep learning is a hot topic these days. And among deep learning specialists, it's been described as being like a rocket ship in that it needs a really big engine, which is the model, and lots of fuel, which is data, in order to go anywhere interesting. A big model combined with big data requires big compute, and at least at the bleeding edge of AI, researchers have gravitated towards HPC or supercomputer-like systems. But in keeping with the convenience versus performance trade-off discussions that play out in many enterprises, there are also other efforts that fall more in the big data rather than the HPC camp. But that's a subject of a future episode. On today's episode, we highlight the latest research in terms of using HPC and supercomputer-like techniques and systems. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Greg Dimas, Senior Researcher at Baidu, welcome to The Data Show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So first of all, actually, before we start, uh, are you Baidu Inc. or Baidu Research?
1: Um, To some extent, it's all part of Baidu. Uh, We're technically part of the... Silicon Valley AI Lab, um, which is part of Baidu research.
0: All right. So let's start out by, uh, as a way of introducing you to our audience, I always uh, start out by uh, having uh, the guests describe their background. So in your case, what was your area of focus in grad school?
1: Sure. So I think of myself as an engineer and a scientist. In graduate school, I focused uh, on how computers work, and how we can make computers faster. I think there's been this big challenge that I kind of came up against in grad school around what happens, you know, going forward in computer systems. Um, kind of people may have noticed that there's been this transition from clock rates that keep increasing to processors with, you know, multiple cores, multi-threading, um, just a lot more parallelism. And so a lot of my research in grad school kind of focused around why that is and how do we make it easier for programmers? So, you know, the, the idea is that parallelism is a great path forward for getting us more performance. You know, we think of all of the great uh, developments that have been enabled by faster computers, like the internet, messaging, email, graphics applications, medical applications, um, you know, database processing systems have been really enabled by faster computers. Um, and so that, that's really where my interest was. And uh, how do we continue that? There are actually a lot of hard technical challenges. And one of the, you know, clear path forwards is parallelism, but the problem with parallelism is that we don't know how to use it. Even though we can build really fast computers, it's not really clear how to take advantage of them. So, um,
0: so at a high level... Was Were you interested mostly in hardware or software?
1: I was interested really in the uh, relationship between the two, new, building new software that makes it possible to take advantage of the new hardware. The thought was that hardware was getting faster, but the previous way of writing software couldn't take advantage of it anymore.
0: So then at some point after grad school, you ended up at NVIDIA, uh, which, yeah. which now, of course, is... Uh, well-known among data scientists because of the rise of deep learning. But at NVIDIA, you were working on uh, CUDA, which is uh, known to people who do scientific computing mostly, right? So is CUDA something more people should be aware of?
1: Um, Maybe not from this community. Uh, CUDA is a low-level way of programming GPUs, which are really just parallel processors. Um, So it's really, you know, my move from academic research into NVIDIA was kind of taking some of the ideas that had been developed during graduate school and then building systems around them, both hardware and software. CUDA is somewhat low level. You know, maybe you would take advantage of CUDA by using a library, but, you know, the purpose of CUDA is really meant to be like the glue between, you know, a a high level application, like a, a programming framework, like NumPy or MATLAB, and the hardware. It's not really meant to be used by um, people who work at the application level.
0: But uh, NVIDIA has training courses and they even uh, work with uh, universities, right, to do CUDA kind of uh, courses?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So CUDA is really interesting if you want to learn about kind of like the nuts and bolts of parallel programming. It's a really interesting topic. It's kind of like the way I might explain it is, You know, imagine your CS101 class, you learn about all of these different algorithms. CUDA kind of forces you to relearn all of that. And they're actually really interesting algorithms uh, that are analogs of all of the things that you learned in CS101 that are kind of how you would do the same thing, but on a parallel processor. And that's kind of what CUDA gives you. It gives you access to parallel hardware. And then a lot of the course material online is around how to write things like sorting, matrix operations, searching uh, algorithms that will run on CUDA and run on a GPU.
0: So during your uh, tenure at NVIDIA, did you uh, start getting interested in deep learning or start working on deep learning?
1: Yeah, so um, at NVIDIA, you know, they had this really great hardware platform. But there was always this question of what do you use it for? The clear idea was you use it for graphics. That's what it was designed to do. But there was also a thought that maybe you could use it for something else, for more applications. Um, And so there were a number of projects going on at NVIDIA that were searching for new applications that you could use CUDA and GPUs for. One of them was deep learning. Um, And so that's kind of how I got exposed to it. Andrew Ng and uh, Brian Catanzaro were two researchers that were uh, collaborating on this topic. Brian was at NVIDIA. And would always tell me about uh, you know the things that were becoming possible using deep learning. Um, and Andrew is a researcher who is doing very pioneering work in the, in the area. Um, so the collaboration of the two, kind of like the machine learning expertise and uh, the GPU parallel computing expertise, was something that was very interesting to me.
0: So well, I, actually, I guess I didn't realize that. Uh, so obviously, of course, uh, deep learning's resurgence in many ways started maybe circa. 2010, 2011, right? So then uh, uh, at what point uh, did NVIDIA s- start seriously uh, investing and in working on deep learning tools?
1: Well, it had been a research project for a very long time before I had joined NVIDIA. But, yeah, it became much more serious, I think, after uh, Alex Krzyzewski's uh, yeah. results. Yep. Um, and, you know... Uh, At NVIDIA, there was the development of the QDNN library. There was just the thought that a lot of people were writing software by hand that was really complicated and really low-level, and that it was better just to write a a library um, that was a single good implementation that everybody could use um, that would give people who were experimenting with deep learning algorithms access to the hardware.
0: So then... um... You started getting into deep learning and then at some point uh, actually moved over to Baidu AI Research to do it, full t- to do it uh, more intensively. And most recently, actually, at our first ever O'Reilly AI conference, you guys announced something called the Deep Learning Benchmark. So why don't you describe what this benchmark is?
1: Sure. So one thing that we've realized uh from doing research in uh, deep learning and high performance computing systems is that deep learning is really limited by compute. It's really limited by how fast a computer runs. And of say it in a different way, it gets better on a faster computer. And so a really clear path forward for a lot of our research um, is just getting faster computers to run these applications. And we often found that, you know, if we're talking to researchers who are wondering about, you know, what is the right hardware platform to run their their algorithms on? Or also from hardware uh, manufacturers, they would often ask us, how can we change our hardware um, so it would be be better for your applications? Um, We found that a lot of those conversations were just really complicated, and there weren't any tools that would let people, you know, pick the right hardware or for hardware manufacturers to determine how to change their systems to be better suited for deep learning. Um, so that's why we created DeepBench. Rather than being some really complicated model, really complicated framework, we tried to pull out the basic building blocks of a lot of deep learning algorithms and specify them as simply as possible, just in terms of the core math operations that they're made out of, like convolutions, matrix multiplications, reductions. Then um, we put all of these different operations together into a benchmark. So we think of DeepBench as being a little bit lower level than a uh, deep learning framework like Paddle Paddle or um, TensorFlow or Torch. It's really more at like the QGNN level. And so, you know, we think of it as being a tool for if you're just wondering, you know, I have my application, how well is it going to run on a GPU or how well is it going to run on an FPGA or some other piece of hardware? Um, it's a lot easier to start by running deep on it um, than it is to port your entire application.
0: And and I guess as as deep learning becomes more popular, non-researchers, so uh, data practicing data scientists and data engineers uh, may want to figure out. Uh, hey, uh, I'd like to run this deep learning framework in the cloud. Maybe I'll uh, use uh, the deep learning benchmark to figure out what kind of instances I should have. Is that is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, that's one of the two main use cases. Um, and for you know, probably a lot of people who are listening here, that's what you would probably want to use DeepBench for. If you're wondering what the right platform of running a, um, your algorithm on would be, you can run DeepBench on it. And it won't tell you the whole story, but it'll let you really quickly get a first, you know, a first order approximation of performance on, on the system that you're thinking about.
0: So you're you're one of the people who are at the bleeding edge of uh, AI research. But uh, uh, as as deep learning uh, becomes better known, becomes more accessible, there's a community of people in uh, data science and big data who want to engage with it, and there are now starting to appear tools that uh, appeal directly to them. So uh, so they are not necessarily probably going to be uh, Situations where the users will uh, apply them on the fastest computers, but it might be in an existing Hadoop or Spark cluster. I'm starting to hear more and more about uh, tools that uh, just integrate directly with, uh, with uh, the existing uh, platforms and frameworks. So what do you think about that as a researcher?
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. It's a good question. Um, one thing that I think is a little bit different about deep learning compared to a lot of analytics or machine learning workloads, is that it is so compute intensive. And when you think of a lot of these machine learning or analytics workloads, you're really thinking about big data, right? You're really thinking about these giant data sets. And the reason why you use systems like Hadoop or um, Spark is because they're really designed around processing these massive data sets, right? If you're storing petabytes, hundreds of petabytes of data, It's a really big problem to partition it across multiple machines, um, and there's a lot of communication and I.O. operations that go on there. Um, So you really think of those applications as being limited by data, the speed at which your computer can process data. Um, Deep learning is a little bit different than that. And so it kind of changes the way that you think about building computers to run deep learning algorithms, whereas these other algorithms are data limited. I think of deep learning as being compute limited. And it kind of means that instead of, you know, these massive data sets, deep learning ends up doing just a huge amount of computation on each data element. And so, you know, if you have a fixed budget, like how much money can I spend spend on a system, and you want to spend it on the thing that, you know, you're most limited by, you don't run out of money buying hard drives and buying storage and memory systems. You run out of money buying processors for deep learning. And so even though you might have access to petabytes, hundreds of petabytes of data, a lot of deep learning algorithms will top out at terabytes, tens of terabytes of data. And you just don't need giant storage systems, you know, for data sets that are of that scale. You'd really like tightly integrated processors, really fast processors to run these algorithms. And so that's kind of why you see a lot more focus on GPUs historically for deep learning um, just because they have a lot of processing power in a single core and also more recently this migration to high performance computing systems um, systems that have really dense computation with very fast very tightly integrated interconnects and it is you know as you said more of like the bleeding edge right now but it really you know compute really is the limit here
0: so i guess the uh the counter perspective is that uh, you, let's say you start out with a lot of raw images with just a lot of data, and then you have to do some pre processing to get it into the, the format that you need to do deep learning in. And so rather than uh, uh, changing to another system, so uh, at some point you just uh, do everything in the existing cluster you have. It won't be as fast, but it'll be. It's the whole convenience versus performance thing, I guess, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't want to de-emphasize the importance of data processing, right? Like, creating a data set is absolutely essential for deep learning, as well as other algorithms. Like, if you look back at the big successes, a lot of people may have heard about ImageNet, the ImageNet uh, benchmark. You know, a lot of the reason that that that, that endeavor was so successful was that the data set that was created, the ImageNet data set was really high quality. And there's a whole separate pipeline that has to go on to, you know, label examples, filter examples, um, you know, uh, clean up a large data set to get it into a format that's able to be um, used by a deep reporting training system. Um, so, you know, don't take what I'm saying to mean that you should throw away your data, you know, uh, cleaning and processing pipelines. Um, you still need them but it, this, uh, this notion of a really fast training system is becoming much more important because, you know, in the past, you might have been able to uh, use the same system for um, data cleaning, data processing, and training, and that's becoming no longer the case. You can train, or sorry, you can, you can clean up a really big data set or process a really big data set, um, and then if you try and run that same, you know, a deep learning algorithm on that, that same data set, if you're not really serious about um, high performance, you're just going to be limited to a small fraction of the data set that you have.
0: So what about if you uh, do distributed training? So it could be synchronous or asynchronous. So you could do, you can even do synchronous mini-batch across a cluster. Um, so you, you know, so that might allow you to train across a bunch of uh, Machines that may not be the uh, the most bleeding edge uh, HPC type parts.
1: Yeah, so, um, right, this is a really good question. So, you know, can you use these um, distributed computations and distributed systems to get more performance? To some extent that you can, but I think it's really important to think about um, the problem that you're trying to solve here, right? The problem... And I think this problem—I think this just gets phrased the wrong way a lot. Um, so let me tell you—let me tell you a story. So um, there was an application like this. I have a friend um, who was looking at an application of an algorithm that's less compute-intensive than deep learning. It's called k-means clustering. People may have heard about this. So he had an example of someone who'd written an implementation of k-means clustering um, that would run on uh, a large distributed system. Uh, And it could scale really well. It could scale to 500 or 1,000 machines. And you get linear scaling. And, you know, my friend was asked to speed this thing up. Um, And so the first thing that he did was he timed it. And he said, how long is it actually taking? So he took, you know, the speed that he was getting on 1,000 machines and compared it to an implementation that he had written before that ran on his laptop. And the version that ran on his laptop was faster by a lot. Right,
0: Um, right, right. I believe that. I mean, uh, I think... uh I guess uh, the, the scenario I'm, I'm, uh, I'm advancing is a scenario where you have this pipeline for pre-processing that you run across a cluster, and then you happen to have a distributed way of training on that same cluster, which may not be as fast, but could be like 70% as fast. And then the convenience just trumps the performance.
1: Yeah, certainly convenience is important here. Um, but if your goal, like, the, let's see, I think, well, if your goal really is just to use a system that you already have, and the system is already distributed, then, you know, that might actually be the easiest thing to do. But I think a lot of people are actually in a situation where the easiest thing is not a parallel algorithm, right? The easiest thing is often just running on one core, running on a single machine, The point that I'd make that I think, um, you know, just may not be really clear all the time is that it's a lot easier to get good performance out of one machine than it is out of a big parallel system. Oh, yeah,
0: absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah.
1: And so I actually think that for a lot of applications, people skip the first step, where the first step is get the best performance you can out of a single machine and then think about distribution. Right,
0: right, right, right. It's just that uh, I guess the, work, the pipeline I'm thinking of is uh, y- you may need a cluster to get to the single machine. <laughs> you know what I mean? So to pre-process it and to fit it into a single machine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you could, you know, maybe what I'm recommending is start by taking your big cluster, process your data, um, try doing, you know, funnel all of it onto one machine and, and do it there, get it really optimized, and then think about distribution um, for the training.
0: So, Mm -hmm. um, actually, this uh, is a good segue. You gave this great talk recently in Stanford called uh, HPC Opportunities in Deep Learning. I I mean, I thoroughly recommend it. I will link to it on the post accompanying this podcast. So, it got me thinking, actually, as you were uh, giving this talk, you were using a lot of concepts that may not be that familiar to uh, practicing data scientists or data engineers. So... If you were, for example, if uh, someone uh, joined your group and they're a data scientist, they're new to the field, and you wanted to give them kind of uh, a few top five things they need to know about hardware, uh, what would they be?
1: Yeah, so maybe my top five list about um, about hardware that applies to deep learning. I think um, one of the big trends has really been GPUs. Um, I think if you're if, you know, if you're not already using GPUs or another parallel processor like a Xeon Phi um, for these workloads, then you really should be. Um, it's been actually really surprising how simple the programming interface has gotten for GPUs. Um, most frameworks, most deep learning frameworks, no matter which one you pick, will have great support for running on a GPU.
0: And so this is kind of, uh, Greg, in many ways, this is somewhat deep learning specific, right? So uh, GPUs are kind of notoriously hard to program, but somehow uh, deep learning uh, for GPUs is easier. Uh,
1: it's really just because of the investment in the software stacks. Like um, deep learning, there's been this emergence of deep learning frameworks, right? There are, you know, I tried to count all of them um, and I came up with a list of 50, you know, or 100 software frameworks like um, Paddle Paddle or TensorFlow or Torch or Fiano um, or Cafe. And these things really do the heavy lifting for you. So people have put in a lot of work into these frameworks to make the problem of programming GPUs easier.
0: So you've and got people, so you've got GPUs or or even C on Fi and I'm assuming even at some point ASIC, right? Uh so then uh so that's processor. So what's next on your list?
1: Yeah, so um so that's that's one thing I think is really um important to take away. So let's see. Yeah, the the other things are maybe a little bit uh A little bit more specialized, but I still think they're really important. So, one other thing that I think has um, become really important is this even one GPU isn't enough, right? That um, we see this relationship. Like, one of the points that I tried to make in the talk was that deep learning gets better with more compute. And it's really related to this idea of deep learning scales really well with the model size and the data set size. Andrew Ng is the chief scientist at Baidu, Um, he has this really great analogy of deep learning as being kind of like a rocket ship, where you need kind of a really big engine, and you need a really uh, a lot of fuel in order to get it off the ground. So the idea here is that um, your model, your deep neural network, is the engine. It has to be big. You can't have a small engine, otherwise your rocket isn't gonna go anywhere. In the same way, you need a lot of fuel, right? If you have a giant engine and only a little bit of fuel, um, the rocket isn't gonna go anywhere. So the fuel is your data. You need this combination of a giant model um, and a giant data set um, really to get good performance out of learning. Um And so when you end up with both of these things together, they really increase the computational requirements of training far beyond what you would get with uh, kind of a more traditional linear model. And, you know, so you really need to go even beyond a GPU um, to take deep learning to its full potential.
0: And then the the situation now, let's say uh, you're not an expert uh, and you want to use multiple GPUs, these frameworks will support that, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, the holy grail for this is to get to the same point with uh, big clusters of GPUs or big clusters of processors that we are with one GPU right now. It's a hard problem. It's a really hard problem. but And I don't think it should be the job of um, a data scientist to solve this problem. Um, a data scientist should really just be about specifying the data set, specifying the model. And then you know if we succeed, we should have frameworks that are uh, intelligent enough to map you know that specification of the problem to hardware in a very efficient way.
0: And then the hardware um, itself, Greg, you think is going to be kind of very... Uh, optimized for this workload.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, I, I absolutely think the hardware will be optimized for this. I think it will be specialized hardware um, where I'm not sure if specialized means, you know, GPUs going forward or if there's something, you know, even better than a GPU uh, that could be built. Yeah, I but, think a lot of us are still waiting to see.
0: Yeah, because G, so I'm assuming that. Uh Uh, GPUs are not, you know, their general purpose somewhat, right? So, I I mean, I guess there's two kinds. There's the GPU, the general purpose GPU. Um, And so they're not uh, necessarily optimized for deep learning itself. So then uh, that's why some people are looking into ASIC, like the TPU, I guess, from Google, right?
1: Yeah, people are actively exploring the space of, is it possible to build an ASIC that's more efficient than a GPU? As far as I know, you know, if you just go out onto the market and you try and buy something, there is nothing that exists that is better than a GPU. But, you know, it's an interesting question. People who design hardware are still wrestling with this. I don't think that there's a clear answer on it. I personally think it's possible to build something that's better than a GPU, but it requires a lot of, you know, maybe forward-looking research technologies to materialize. Uh, many of them related to process, like to manufacturing, and so you know, I, I think it's just a it's a long shot right now to build an ASIC for deep warning. It doesn't mean that people aren't trying, and I really hope that they are successful because it would be it would have very high impact if they're successful. But so, I do, uh, so why
0: uh, why do you say it's a long shot? What what uh, what what's your basis for saying it's a long shot?
1: Um, well. To some extent, the solution isn't obvious, right? Like for a lot of applications, maybe well, let's, let's think of like something like compression or um, BitTorrent is another, or sorry, not BitTorrent, but Bitcoin mining um, is another famous example right. of where the solution is just very straightforward. Just given the problem, it's very clear what the hardware will look like. Um, if you ask the same question about deep warning, um, I think you have to be very creative. It's not really obvious to people what an ASIC would look like. Um, that would be better than a GPU. I think people have a few uh, main ideas. One of the big ideas floating around is reduced precision. And the problem with that is that GPUs are also adding support for that. And so, you know, the advantage between an ASIC and a GPU just is uh, shrinking as time goes on. And, you know, another piece of this is just that hardware design has gotten really complicated and really expensive. So, you know, if you have a great idea, like a great idea for an ASIC, um, there's a huge capital investment. There's a huge amount of risk because there's so many different technologies that have to be successfully executed to um, compete with like a, a very high end processor running in a you know bleeding edge process, um, like 14 nanometer, 10 nanometer. Um, so, you know, the combinations of all of these things, I think, just make it very risky, even if you ha- do have a good idea. Um, There have been a couple proposals in the research community about how to do this, like how to build an ASIC. I think all of them are somewhat of a stretch. The one that I like the best is based around 3D integration um, in the sense of, you know, kind of gluing memories really tightly um, in a really tightly connected way to processors. The problem with this is that it only really uh, gives you a big advantage if you have a process that can support it. And as far as I know, that type of technology is extremely expensive. Think of like a billion-dollar investments in new fabs and, you know, multiple years away. By the
0: way, uh, one of the things you actually pointed out in your talk, right, so uh, you've got GPUs, they're programmable, and you can start even considering multiple GPUs, as you point out. But uh, uh, there's also the software. you can optimize better um i don't know fast fourier transforms convolutions and things like that that uh, that uh, you can uh, rewrite them for the gpu and, and and those make a difference right
1: yeah absolutely i think nvidia was um you know in hindsight they really got it right by investing in developing the qdnn library when they did um one of the surprising things that you know i think of when i when i compare the software stacks for deep learning right now is that they're actually better on gpus than they are on cpus like it's not very often that you can say that you know the software stack running on an nvidia gpu is simpler easier to use better performing better well optimized than the x86 version that's a really weird situation to be in but you know i think nvidia just to some extent realized early on that deep learning was going to be important and made the investment in software early on and it's paying off.
0: So there's some uh, potential to improve uh, CPUs then?
1: Yeah, I think so. There's, well, there's certainly potential to improve um, the performance of these uh, algorithms on CPUs, but um, there's a limit on it. I think the, the differences in the software are more of, you know, what operations are supported um, even if you supported them on a, on an x86 CPU right now, especially on a single core, there'd be a pretty big gap, um, between, you know, the performance on, on that processor and on a GPU.
0: So hardware topic number three, would they be, uh, interconnects?
1: Yeah, I think, right. Interconnects are really important and this is really bad news actually, I think for a lot of the industry. Oh really? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. I think, um you know, a lot of the industry has built these um, distributed systems around uh, data centers and around cloud, right? And the way that you build um, interconnects for these systems, and the way that you build like, you know, abstractions like virtualization, and a lot of the programming models for um, these systems, you're kind of trying to support a very different workload, right? You're trying to support a lot of lightweight web servers or lightweight compute processes that um you know, might communicate over over an interconnect, but that interconnect might be like the internet, right? So it's more important that you can very quickly scale up, scale down, you have like uh, virtualization isolation between um processes um and you have like reliability
0: the decouple right? so decouple storage and computation,
1: yeah, exactly. so um a lot of systems. Cloud systems, data centers have been designed around those kinds of uh, requirements, and they're great, you know, great systems for those applications, but they're really the wrong thing for these applications. So it's really unfortunate um, that we can't just reuse all of this hardware that we have. And the biggest problem is interconnects. And the way someone can understand this is, you know, for these um, uh, deep learning algorithms, when you want to distribute them over more than one processor, they have to talk really you know in a really tightly integrated way they have to have really low latency i'm talking about like microseconds or nanoseconds and they have to have huge bandwidth right you have to have you know 50 100 gigabit per second connections between these nodes and you know if you if you're you know running on a cloud environment and, and you just get allocated two nodes you know on the opposite side of the data center that's just not going to work And a lot of the programming models for um, cloud systems and data centers are really designed around this very flexible, fungible um, allocation of resources. And it's at odds with the requirements of these applications. So interconnects are really important. But unfortunately, if you want to go out and say, can I get access to a system with a good interconnect, really tightly integrated interconnect, it kind of doesn't exist. What about,
0: so even if you want, if you're prepared to spend on your network?
1: Yeah, if you want to spend on your network, um, either people who design clouds are going to have to rethink the way that they build software for clouds, specifically around resource allocation and scheduling, or you have to buy your own hardware. Um, and it's a really, you know, I'm sorry that I have to say that, but I really wish I didn't. That wasn't the situation, but um, it's the situation we find ourselves in around interconnects.
0: Um, let's see. Um... How about I.O.?
1: Yeah, I.O. systems, you know, they're they're different, right? Like they're they're also interesting. They're also different. I.O. in particular has been something that I don't think we've had to think too much about from a deep learning perspective, just because it's so compute limited that we started out actually at Baidu running our algorithms, you know, on a few nodes, you know, a lot of GPUs, a couple of nodes, all tightly inter- interconnected, and you could feed the whole thing off of a single hard drive. Just because, you know, for every byte you loaded off the hard drive, you did, you know, millions or billions of uh, compute instructions. Um, But as we start making the um, algorithms even faster, right, like as we keep speeding up, as we keep speeding up the model training, the deep deep neural network, the IO system has to keep up with it. And we get ourselves into a situation that's just a little bit strange um, from an IO perspective. Um, And it's very different than a lot of other I.O. workloads. You know, people may have heard that one of the building blocks of deep learning is is stochastic gradient descent. The word stochastic in there kind of implies a random traversal through the data. And so it means that the data access patterns in a straightforward way that come out of these applications are random. And, you know, if you start saying I need high bandwidth for random accesses, um, and your compute keeps getting faster, you eventually end up with this um, high bandwidth requirement of random accesses out of a large, but not you know, insanely large, um, file system or I.O. system. And so that's becoming a challenge. I'd say this is something that's going to be important going forward, but you know, if you're someone who's not really at the bleeding edge right now, you probably don't have to worry about it yet.
0: So there's also some... Um... So as you say, right, so you mentioned stochastic gradient descent, but uh, are there also kind of fundamental building blocks like that at the algorithm level that uh, if there's some breakthrough changes, how you design your hardware?
1: Yeah, well, it's certainly true um, that, so let's talk about the algorithms. Part of the algorithms are the um, optimization methods like stochastic gradient descent. Part of the algorithms are the neural networks themselves whether they're convolutional, recurrent, other strange architectures, I think in both cases, there's, you know, there's been progress that's been made and the field has been moving very rapidly. So because of that, you actually see a diversity of new methods that are being proposed, I do think that there's opportunities for innovation across both of these fields, either, um, if you look at the optimization methods, they started with kind of bare uh, stochastic gradient descent, and there have been a number of variants that try to kind of walk the line between um, including second-order information and uh, not, you know, having enormous computational requirements. If you look at the models, uh, there's been just a very rapid progress of, um, you know, existing simple models, you know, migrating to very complex models. Like if you compare the original AlexNet model against the, you know, the current ImageNet winner, Um, Just look at the amount of complexity that's been introduced um, to the hundred-layer ResNet models. There's been innovation in the algorithms. That innovation has really led to a lot of new, better performance on real applications. And it's also, you know, from a hardware perspective, it means that there are now more applications, more really diverse application behaviors that we need to support. And you know, that I think is one of the big challenges going forward: figuring out what are the basic building blocks that can let us you know, support this huge diversity of algorithms.
0: And are there uh, missing libraries uh, that interface with your hardware platform?
1: Yeah, we're we're commonly running across, you know, new behaviors uh, in the algorithms that just don't have library support. So, you know, QDNN started out, uh, it's actually interesting to look at the evolution of QDNN. Um It started out mostly focusing on matrix multiplication and convolution. So things that you would find in compnets, as the compnets changed from kind of these, you know, maybe larger filters, larger uh, multiplies into things that are more narrow, the libraries had to change. There are new techniques that have been introduced, like batch normalization, pooling, like contrast normalization, that that have kind of changed the libraries themselves. Um, If you step outside of image recognition, there's even more diversity, at Baidu, we work a lot on um, sequential models like speech, language understanding.
0: LS, so these are the LSDM kind of?
1: Yeah, so we think of those as uh, specialized cases of recurrent neural networks. So, you know, new building blocks have been added for recurrent neural networks. You know, those are the two big classes, I think, right now, convolutions and recurrent neural networks. There are probably 10 or more other classes uh, that are more research ideas. Um, that haven't been really widely adopted, but have been successful at specific applications, models like attention, right. um, memory Mem- memory. Networks.
0: yeah, yep, yep there's
1: even yeah. some. there's
0: it, even one that I read where uh, the uh, neural net had access to an external memory,
1: yeah. so if, if you if you spend time reading you know deep warning papers, you'll come across probably hundreds or more of these variants, and all of them are missing good support from software. So when people experiment with these new ideas, you're typically you know, in this regime of having to deal with poor performance, having to do smaller scale experiments because the software hasn't been tuned for your model yet. And it does, you know, that, that lag, the lag between having a new idea and being able to have a fast software implementation um, really is holding back, I think, a lot of progress.
0: By the way, Greg, as, as someone who reads a lot of uh, deep learning papers, you probably uh, have a great feel for how the field is evolving. So, I mean, I'm on the outside, right? I skim a lot of these papers, and uh, it's, it seems like uh, every now and then there's a breakthrough. There's an architecture that catches everyone's attention, and then there's a slew of papers that just tweaks that architecture. And and there's incremental progress around that architecture. And then you then it starts over again. Is that is that the correct perception?
1: Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, I think one thing I think that's um well, I think there are a couple of trends that are worth uh, mentioning here. Certainly like all research, you know, people try risky ideas. You try something that may or may not work. Um usually it's the case that a few things work okay, but then you know, even fewer, like a very few uh, number of ideas just end up being very successful. Um, I think you see that across a lot of different fields. learning, you know, is a good example of this. I think there are a couple of trends. I think one thing that's underemphasized is the importance of data sets, right? That um, a lot of work has been done because it's easy, I think, around tweaking models, as you said, like small variations on models. And that's important, but it's really only, you know, one piece of a complete story the complete story is giant data sets, you know, interesting model architectures, um, and then scaling it up on a big computer. Um, and the thing that I think doesn't get enough attention right now, uh, reading a lot of papers, is on focusing on creating new data sets. Yeah, it was, it was really the basis of a lot of the deep speech work that we did. You know, a lot of the deep speech work, we started from, um, you know, ideas that, you know, they were they were somewhat simple to start with. Um, but the really big difference was just scaling it up um, and kind of showing that you know it actually does keep getting better with really large data sets, um, and then you can actually surpass um, prior res- prior systems that we had internally and and also externally. By the by way, just the, up an ID. The,
0: the The training times seem so long, and maybe this is not how you actually uh, go about uh, doing research on on a daily basis, but I think some of the training times are like on the order of weeks, right?
1: Yeah, so... So do you, guys, do you
0: guys take a random sample, try it out, and then, and then go for it on the multi-week uh, data set?
1: Yeah, I mean, you do think about uh, scaling up, right? And, you know, we've actually done some experiments about, like, if you get a result on a small data set with a small system, does that result hold up on the larger data set? And we find that they're uh, correlated, but not perfectly. I see. So we think of it as, you know, a small data set as a necessary but not sufficient condition to vet a new idea.
0: So then at some point, in order for you to really validate the idea, you have to really let it go for a few weeks.
1: Yeah, um, that's and, right. And, and you and, know, one of our tools there is just if we can make the system faster, then we can turn that, you know, turn, turn the insight around faster, turn the experiment around faster.
0: So if you were to predict the things that are now taking you a few weeks at some point, do you think uh, you'll get it down to a day or two? And uh, uh, how how long before we get there?
1: My personal goal is about 100 times faster uh, than we currently are in about two to three years. I think that's possible, although I think it's difficult. I think if we do nothing, we'll probably get four to 10 times. Um, I think with a lot of work, we could get 100 times or more.
0: And, and, you know, I mean, so you talk about uh, deep learning and HPC. So when I think of HPC, I think about things like MPI and uh, things like that. So is is this kind of uh, uh, the trend?
1: You know, MPI, yeah, I I think it is. But, you know, I'll make an aside about MPI, right? Um, Let's see. We use MPI. I think it's kind of an old piece of software to some extent. Like it's really designed in the 90s. It's really built around send and receive. There's a lot of more rich features you have in other types of systems. But the problem with, you know, moving off of MPI that we have is that it's really the only framework that gives us really good performance. Like if we just measure really simple tests, like starting up a process on two different nodes and just sending data from one to the other, Um, And say, for different software packages, how much performance do we actually get? How close to the peak throughput do we actually get? MPI is the only thing that we found that comes anywhere near the peak performance of the hardware. And that seems really strange to me. But, you know, as long as that's true, I think um, there will be a reason to use MPI.
0: So then uh, it's the future deep learning system. For uh, researchers like you, is it going to be like a supercomputer?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think of it like a supercomputer. Yeah, yeah. If you yeah. Think of, just like yeah.
0: just like the ones that are listed in whatever the top five hundred fastest in the world.
1: Yeah, I think you know if you look five years or more back, um, people would you know wonder you know maybe it's a stretch to run our workload on a GPU. Um, I think you know over time with software, people succeeded in uh, doing that. I think the next thing that we're looking to now is can I run the same workload on my supercomputer? And, you know, it's a big stretch to do that. There's a lot of software that needs to be developed for that. Yeah, yeah,
0: you have to write all that software. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think there are also a lot of hard technical problems. Um, The most important one being parallelism. That these workloads are parallel, but you need a lot of parallelism to fully utilize 10,000 GPUs. Um, And, I just don't think that, you know, we've solved that problem for things like uh, fluid simulation or weather simulation or, you know, um, uh, plasma physics or something. But we haven't solved it for deep learning yet. Um,
0: You know, and also, also, Greg, in our world of big data, uh, you just assume that the nodes fail. So things are fault tolerant. In that world, it's all checkpointing, right?
1: It's true. This is one of the... um, you know, the downsides of MPI is that it seems strange to me that, you know, MPI is built around this model where you just start up your application, and it runs, and you're sure that it's going to run. And if it fails, you fall back on checkpointing. You don't want that, right? Like, you'd want more flexible creation, destruction of nodes. And it doesn't really seem to make any sense to me why, you know, you can't build a low-level communication library that gets good performance that also is fault tolerant. But as far as I know, such a thing doesn't exist.
0: And then also the uh, maybe I'm misremembering this, but the algorithms of MPI. You need to know something about the topology of the cluster, right?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, I think you know, in the uh, ra- the scale of systems that we've been thinking about, and even probably that most people will think about for the near future, it's fine to assume that. Nodes are just fully connected. That we just have you know full bisection bandwidth switches connecting all of our uh, nodes together. You know clearly that doesn't scale forever. Um, but we're you know we're not at the level of the scale of a system where uh, that issue becomes important. And so a lot of us are just punting on it until we get you know we solve the bigger problem, which is how do we get more parallelism.
0: And so um, what, in, in the next uh, few years, what are you most excited about in terms of your own uh, research projects and directions? I mean, the
1: thing I'm really excited about for deep learning is what it enables, right? When I was in school, people would always say, you know, of course it would be valuable if we could recognize speech perfectly or we could recognize images perfectly, but that's too hard of a problem, right? That's harder than, you know, the hardest optimization problems that we know about. There's no way we can even try. we're not ready yet. Deep Horning gives us a tool that actually allows us to solve those problems. The thing that's exciting the most to me are the applications of that. I have no idea what they're going to be, but I know they're going to be amazing.
0: right, right, right. So then uh, in order for these applications to come to fruition, people like you need to solve some of these really deep systems and hardware
1: yeah i I mean personally, I feel like it's always easier to make computers faster than it is to you know, solve a really hard um, algorithm problem or a really hard math problem? Just me personally, I think we've had a lot of success, you know, as an industry making computers faster.
0: You know, uh, the other thing I've been thinking about recently, actually, is uh, I've been following the work of uh, uh, folks like Josh Tannenbaum in MIT, right? So they're starting to really think about, uh, so deep learning is good at certain things, but uh, certain things it isn't good at. So then let's Go back to basics and see, for example, how 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 humans think and figure out how we can build systems that, uh, that, for example, learn with less data, kind of find the uh, causal relationships quicker, have uh, model building capabilities and things like that. So I think deep learning is going to be an important piece, but maybe there's other pieces that uh, will supplement it, right?
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. You know, deep learning is a really powerful tool, but, you know, we're still very far away from um, understanding uh, everything about intelligence. And there are a lot of these, you know, really severe limitations of the existing systems. And data is a really good one uh, that you mentioned that, you know, um, it's really embarrassing to some extent how much data uh, it requires for some of these systems to learn pretty simple things like recognizing a new class, Compared to what it takes people to do, so there, there are clearly you know uh, innovations in the learning algorithms that can happen,
0: and it tends to rely on uh, label data, supervised, right? So
1: yeah, supervised learning is the thing that works really well. You know, to the extent that there's just so many applications we can apply it to, I think there's been a lot of focus because of that. You know, unsupervised learning, reinforcement learning, progress in these areas would be. I think of it like supervised learning gives us a really great tool we can solve so many problems with it. These other things, that would be even better. That would be, you know, it's already amazing. That would be double amazing.
0: By the way, uh, so supervised learning, okay, so it requires a lot of data, but uh, am I mistaken to say that I'm also starting to see results where there's some transfer learning capabilities of these systems in the sense that you may train it, you know, like in the translation setting, right? So you can translate between two languages, English to French, and then French to Spanish, and then you are can apply the composition, and then it'll translate English to Spanish without any data.
1: Yeah, I mean, those are people are actively working on those topics. Um, there's definitely been progress made on on transfer learning, um, and then you know, learning outside of supervised learning, but. Yeah, I I feel like supervised learning is kind of the workhorse right now. It's, um, yeah, it's to some extent, like, you know, people might think about this differently. This is maybe a gross generalization. But uh, one way to think about these different types of learning is maybe the value you get per sample. Um, How much do you learn from um, a specific sample? I think right now, you know, there's a lot of value if you have a label. And right. so and especially if the label was generated by um maybe an expert human and the so four applications where you know you can um just pay money or convert money into labels it's often a very good investment.
0: Yeah and, and to be honest humans require uh superv- supervision too right so they require some examples but it's just that they don't require as many right so
1: Yeah absolutely. Yeah I, I, I think there's a big gap, and and you know there's work in this direction, but there's still a lot of progress to be made.
0: Hey, before I let you go, there's one thing uh, I I wrote down here. So you talked about deep learning gets better with more compute. In particular, you know if you can combine a giant model with a giant data set, then it tends to really uh, shine. But what about some of these early results around taking a deep neural net and compressing it, right? So these compressed representations. In particular, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Song Han and Bill Daly and Stanford. Where yeah,
1: you, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So, how do those? So, what exactly were their results? Are some of these results in this area?
1: Yeah. So, um, it's important to kind of understand what these things mean. There are a few consequences, um, but I think the most important one is that this gives you a tool of even if it took your model a lot of compute to train, once it's trained, you can substantially shrink it um, and Shrinking it results in, you know, very little loss in accuracy. Song's work mostly focuses on uh, image recognition, like with convnets. We recently um, released a paper um, that shows you can also apply this to, um, to speech recognition um, and for recurrent neural networks. So, so, then, so th-
0: then, Greg, subsequently then, uh, can you then go back, the next time you train the network, you train a, the pruned version? Instead of the food. that's
1: yeah that's that's nice that would be great um you know I think that's an open research direction okay as far as I know no one's gotten it to work yet um I think that there's a lot of you know hints that it will work but as far as I know no one's gotten it to work wow this has been great
0: very educational uh fantastic uh, uh overview of the deep learning landscape in in particular uh, hardware so thank you Greg.
1: Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: For the most recent developments in industrial AI, you can consider attending one of our events in 2017. Go to O'ReillyAICon.com. You can now follow Greg Dimas on Twitter at Gregory Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.